Meditations with Ryan Smallmack. Is your lucky number 11? If so, today is your lucky day because this is episode 11 of Meditations with Ryan Zlomek. And as always, I am so thankful that you are here to join me in conversation. It's been an interesting journey so far, and I want to just start off by thanking all of you who uh, have come back to listen some more. Uh, Our last episode with Tim Allen, the stop-motion animator who worked on Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, and uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, uh, and a million other movies took off, and took off in a way that I never expected. And I just want to let all of you who are listening know how much I deeply appreciate you joining me for this little podcast adventure. When I started this up about six months ago, I didn't expect anybody to tune in. I thought this would just be a great opportunity for me to have enriching dialogue with people that I found interesting. And lo and behold, a lot of you all over the world seem to be enjoying it as well. So if you do like what you're hearing, please Give a review, send me an email, meditations at ryanslomac.com. Follow me on social media and just give a shout out and let me know how the uh, show is affecting you. I just want to make sure that we're putting positive vibes into the universe. And with that said, today is another day for some positive vibes. I had the luxury of moving to Chittenango, New York when I was in middle school. Uh, And if that name doesn't ring a bell to you, don't worry. It's a place where if you blink, you miss it. But it is pretty significant, uh, a significant part of cultural history. It's the birthplace of L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz in 1900. And uh, as you probably know, it turned into a stage show, it turned into a book series, and it turned into a very, very famous 1939 Technicolor picture from MGM. And I want to start off by giving a shout out to the All Things Oz Museum and the organizers of Oz Stravaganza in Chittenango, New York, who, without whom this interview would not take place. And let's talk about the interview. In today's interview, we're going to have John Fricky. John is the foremost historian on Judy Garland and the Wizard of Oz. And when I say foremost, I mean, I, I do, cannot think of anybody else on the planet who knows more about the trajectory and the importance of these two cultural landmarks, both Judy Garland and her illustrious career and the Wizard of Oz from the books to the movies to the sequels uh, to the entire culture behind it. John is an Emmy Award winner. Uh, in 2004, he won an Emmy Award uh, working with PBS's American Masters. He's been nominated for a Grammy in 1996 with his work on uh, Judy Garland 25th Anniversary Retrospective Music Collection. Um, and he uh, has done something that I find really exciting. As somebody who loves collecting physical media, he is the commentary and the commentary organizer on a variety of different releases of The Wizard of Oz 1939 film, including the most recent Blu-rays, the DVD collections, and my personal super nerdy favorite, the Laserdisc collections. So if you're ever watching The Wizard of Oz and you want John to join you, you can just switch the audio commentary track on and get a really amazing glimpse into the making of the film. The Wizard of Oz is a, uh, considered a, a classic, as we'll talk about. It is arguably the most viewed film of all time. And as we are here in the holiday season, and I think it's time for magic, it seemed like spending some time in Oz was the way to go. So we're going to chat with John Fricky. We're going to chat about things like libraries, the importance of Oz books, the idea of journalism uh, as you know it relates to popular media. And then we're just going to kind of exist and uh experience the world, and see what magic Oz can bring together. So without further ado, here is my interview with John Fricky. 
so John, thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show. And at the most magical time of the year, and as I'm thinking about what's magical other than the Wizard of Oz, getting to talk to the top scholar of the Wizard of Oz is just always a great way to start things. So thanks so much for joining. Very welcome. And it's nice that you read my credits and give my title just as I presented them to you. Absolutely. And you're wearing a name tag, I think, too, that says it. So I couldn't forget. Oh, I no. Can you see what it says? Why I'm Linda Mason. Now, do you know that that line? I actually don't. It's from, um, I have three wonderful nieces in Portland, Oregon, all of whom have been brought up on movie musicals, not because uh, I was there to force them to watch them growing when they were growing up in Milwaukee, but because they loved them instinctively. Our whole family loves traditional entertainment. And they love all the pop stuff, too, and everything. But they grew up watching the Harvey Girls and Summer Stock and Mother Wore Tights and all the Disney musicals and all the rest of it. And in the movie Holiday Inn, uh, Marjorie Reynolds is trying to make an impression uh, uh, on Christmas Eve in the beginning scenes when she takes flowers to the nightclub in New York where Bing and Fred are appearing. And she's seated at the artist table because she's there to see them. And their agent comes in and doesn't know who she is. And, and she's, you know, she's just trying to make an impression. And he says, well, who are you? And she says, why, I'm Linda Mason, you know, as if he should know who she was. And um one of my nieces brought my sister one of, of with Roz Russell as Auntie Mame. You know, my everybody else in the family got illustrated ones. I got one with just it comes from being the writer, I guess. Well, now we have the the listeners are getting a pure picture of what the life of John Fricky is like. So this is perfect. And speaking of you, just you mentioned uh, Milwaukee, and I'm curious about you know you grew up in the Midwest in Milwaukee, and then and then made your way to New York City. Tell us a little bit. Of, what was it like growing up in Milwaukee? Well, I was born in, in November 1950, so I got the, the benefit of being the first real TV generation. In fact, my folks bought a TV when I was born because they figured they weren't going to be able to afford to go out a lot. My dad was a public school teacher and my mom had been one, but she retired then to be a stay at home mom. I'm the oldest of the three of us. And they thought, well, no, we won't go out, but we'll have a TV for the three of us, for Johnny Fricky. Uh, my mother to this day or till the day she died, I, I had one four syllable name, Johnny Fricky. And um so I grew up with the very best of that kind of kids entertainment. And, and because of my parents' love for music and entertainment, I inherited that, no question. And uh, Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, uh, you've got to have old listeners to recognize that, but the Bert Hilstrom's puppets and Fran Allison, the singer, and um, Captain Kangaroo and Romper Room and, and Ding Dong School and all of those programs had musical interludes. It was all that kind of stuff. So um, I had, and very early on, my parents bought me a three-speed phonograph, you know, 78, 45, and 33. They could play, you know, it was a kid's phonograph, but it was really kind of classy. And they were buying me records. I had fallen in love with Mary Martin's Peter Pan on TV in 1955. And um, I had the Nutcracker Suite, and I had the Disney storybook uh, albums. Anyway, so I was listening to records, the booklets, um, if anybody remembers the old Disney records, the booklets opened up and the uh, left page was the dialogue as and the, as it was being on heard on the record. The right hand page was um, illustration of, of that scene. But I that would help me learn to read because I was following all those words on the page. So by five, five and a half, I was already reading to a certain extent. I was listening to music. I was going to the library with my folks all the time. 
And uh, that's that's the foundation that led to, I guess, my being prepped for Wizard of Oz when that came along just before my sixth birthday. Well, we'll we'll get there. We'll get there in a little bit. One other thing I'm kind of curious about is like I I was unaware that your uh, your family uh, had that that educational background, um, but you also uh, at a fairly early age decided that you were going to study journalism. Uh, you know, you you ended up going to uh, to Northwestern. It sounds like the performance end of your of your life was defined very early on. When did the sort of writing journalism, uh, you know, investigative interest start to kind of hit you? The research came in. I think, I don't know. I know I started looking for information about Walt Disney very early on uh, because I, he was making the kind of entertainment. And I wanted to know about the backstory of those enter, that entertainment, the Mickey Mouse Club and Snow White and Pinocchio and, and Alice in Wonderland and whatever I was seeing, whatever I was listening to on records. But it wasn't, it, it was really the Oz and the Judy Garland stuff that clicked in just short of my sixth birthday. And then getting my first library card when I was seven and finding out that um, very within a year after the, I first saw The Wizard of Oz, that Judy Garland uh, made other movies, that she made other record albums than the two my parents had given me for my sixth birthday, uh, that The Wizard of Oz picture book they gave me for my sixth birthday. Now, mind you, those two records and that picture book were just three weeks after I'd seen the telecast and I had talked of nothing else. Um as you probably can tell, I am prone to enthusiasm. And this is not something I have to manufacture. This goes way, way, way back. When I found out that this picture book, there was I could read most of it, but on the copyright page, I was even looking at the copyright page. And it's, you know, copyright 1900 by Frank Baum and W.W. Denslow, copyright renewed 1934 by Maud Gage Baum. And, and then there was the little block that said, this book is an abridgment of the famous story by L. Frank Baum adapted for younger readers. And I had to go to my parents and say, what does abridgment mean? What What is that word? And when they told me that that meant that this was a, a shorter version of The Wizard of Oz, I was like, well, where's the whole version? Where, where, where Where's the whole? If, if there's more than this, you know, please, please. I wasn't a, a, a lie down and kick on the floor kind of kid, but it was like, please. And we went to Woolworths and there was a 59 cent uh, kind of uh, board-covered, um, cheap edition of the full text of The Wizard of Oz. And I got that the summer I was um, six. So that within six months of seeing the movie, I was reading this whole book, all 24 chapters. And what words I didn't know, I just skipped over. But I certainly got enough of it. And then compounding this at the same time, this in the mid to late 50s is when all the movie studios were leasing their old movies from the 30s and 40s and early 50s to local TV stations. There was no such thing as network Sunday night at the movies then or Thursday night at the movies. Uh, Wizard of Oz being telecast coast to coast on November 3rd, 1956 to 45 million people um, was a, a special one off event. Uh, which is when I saw it and changed my life. But again, uh, they, CBS didn't show it again for three years. They they didn't think there would be an audience every year. But uh, the local stations in Milwaukee were leasing from MGM, Meet Me in St. Louis and Easter Parade and the musicals with Mickey Rooney. And, and my parents, again, when I, I was, what, seven, eight, nine years old, maybe 10, they would put me to bed at 7.30, 8, 8.39, whatever my bedtime was. 
But if there was a Judy Garland movie on The Late Show on Milwaukee TV, they would set an alarm clock in my bedroom and I would get up at 1030. And more often than not, one of them would watch with me because they love those movies too. And their their rationale was what harm can possibly come to anybody from watching these pictures? Absolutely none. Absolutely none. And when you fall in love with Judy, you get such a, a crash course in the history of American popular entertainment from the turn of the century up to 1969 when she passed. So there were the Garland movies, the Garland records, and then to go back to part of uh, the question of an hour and a half ago, uh, you, uh, I, I, um, the summer I was seven, I found out that the downtown Milwaukee Public Library, the Central Library, had uh, 112 times more books than the local neighborhood library and periodicals and bound periodicals. And because times were different in 1958 when I was seven, my parents would give me 30 cents. I went every day for a week, the end of my summer vacation. And then they said, John, we can't afford $2.10 a week. You can't keep going every day. You can go one day a week. But they would give me a dime for the bus downtown, a dime for the bus back, and a dime for a bag of popcorn. And I would take the 90-minute round-trip bus uh, trip through the, through the inner city of Milwaukee. Nobody gave it a second thought. There I was, this little seven-year-old kid, eight, nine-year-old kid in my shorts and my... Uh, little button-down shirt and I had a library card of my own by then and I was going through the kids books and going crazy through the kids books and the, I knew how to use the card catalog already and I was looking up Baum L. Frank and finding other books I, I found out about the reader's guide to periodical literature that gave all the dates when there were, you could look up Baum, L. Frank, you could look up Garland, Judy you could look up movies, Wizard of Oz and they would tell you when in magazines or periodicals, there have been things about any of those topics. I looked up all the original reviews of Wizard of Oz. I could find all of the Garland uh, clippings and feature articles in Life and Time and Look and stuff about Frank Baum. And then there, were, there was a book called The Wizard of Oz and Who He Was that came out just about this time that was a, an appreciation of Baum and it had a bibliography listing other periodicals and encyclopedias that... I drove the adult librarians in Milwaukee absolutely crazy. They were not, you, you know, the kids librarians got used to me very easily. You know, the, I was a kid. But when I was there, you know, wanting to see the Milwaukee Journal for August 1939, to see what the ads, the bound copies of the full newspapers, what the ads for The Wizard of Oz looked like when it opened in Milwaukee. And uh, trying to find the dates that the Gum Sisters, Judy and her sisters, had played at the Riverside Theater in 1934. And uh, all the other periodicals. And, and then I found uh, in the adult section all the books on movies. That's where the research started. That's really interesting, like this idea that <clears throat> you discover when you're in kindergarten that you're basically a pretty good archivist. <laughs> You know, like you're you're good at being able to go and like and and hunt down stuff and figure out how A connects to B and C connects to D and understanding that like legally there's a there's a part of these publications where they have to give you information about, you know, like who owns the copyright and uh, you know, whether or not this is a full text. It's just a it's a really interesting way to to dissect media, especially at a time when like right now we're so used to just taking all that for granted, because if you don't know it, you just Google it and you find it. 
No, that's absolutely true. It was a, a glorious uh, learning process. I think if I'd had Google uh, when I was seven, I would have finally collapsed when I was 18 from not having slept for 11 years. I just mentioned this to somebody yesterday who was thinking about doing an Oz documentary, and they did a pre-interview with me on the phone. It wasn't recorded. But in 2005, I was sent to the Deauville Film Festival in, in France uh, because Warner had just had The Wizard of Oz restored frame by frame from the three-strip Technicolor negatives, uh, resized and despotted and stretched or you know whatever they needed to do. And Rob Hummel, who had overseen this for Warner Brothers, and I, as the guy who did the commentary track and helped produce all the side documentaries, we were sent to the film festival in France to launch this. Great honor. Great honor. And there was a big international press conference with about 20 people in all different languages asking us questions and a translator sitting to my left who would then give us the questions. Of course, then you you imagine Rob and I, same piece of cloth, we gave these kinds of answers, the kind I'm giving to you, and the poor translator was making notes frantically, trying to remember what we were saying so she could translate it back to the uh, press conference. Well, anyway, the next day, there was another uh, press gathering, but it was in a, a very lovely uh, lounge at the hotel, uh, you know, and drinks and snacks and hors d'oeuvres and everything. And we went interviewer to interviewer and had like five, seven minutes with eight minutes, seven with 15 different people. And by the end of this, I was pretty ozzed out. It, it does happen, I, I confess. But um, we got to we got to the end of that last interview and uh the um interviewer shot me a question for which i was not prepared i mean i was ready to talk about was over the rainbow really cut after the first preview and and um was margaret hamilton really burned and you know were the munchkins really rowdy all of that i could do in my sleep uh and was happy to do it this is fun to share but this man said now john what i want to know is what this you saw the movie this is 2005 you saw the movie you know 1956 what is that almost 50 years ago he said what does this movie mean to you now and i had this flash of uh holy cow where do i go with you know with this and the flash lasted no longer than that by the grace of god because as I have often said in cases like this, when you're asked something, especially publicly, or when I'm writing and I don't know how to something, God sends the words. That much of a, a Lutheran from Wisconsin, I will always be proudly, gratefully. And there was this, he asked the question, there was this flash of, uh-oh, and then I heard myself open my mouth and say, he said, what does this movie mean to you now? And I said, this movie is a passport to my life. Boom, 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 boom. And that is indeed what it is. Well, let's let's get to this passport, John, shall we? I wanna um I wanna just uh, throw a few things out there because I, I I think they're important from the uh the wonderful monologue that you just uh gave to all of us. Um so first things first, I really just wanna uh in a in a time where uh there's so many people who are concerned about 
are kids accessing the right material and what are the rules of libraries? I don't want to go down this path too much, but I want to give a shout out to all the librarians out there. I want to say that libraries are really important places of self-discovery. They're important places of research. They're important places, period. And they, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if you know librarians hadn't entrusted you to be mature and thoughtful and curious with media. Um, all those years ago. And I, I just, I want to make sure that I put that out there. Um, number two, in regards to uh, just a, a little background on our conversation, because for listeners who are out there who are just like, Ryan, you just found somebody who uh, literally uh, could could talk about Oz for the rest of their days on the planet without taking a breath. You are 100% correct. I have found that person. But I think it's important to just sort of paint the picture a little bit that um, for anybody who's who's approaching this this conversation is like, why on earth are we talking about uh, you know Oz? And, and yeah, it's a cool movie and whatever. I just want to give some background real quick, which is uh, L. Frank Baum uh, was born in Chittenango, New York, which is a town that I was lucky enough to move to in 1997. Um, and it's uh, a, a little town that John Fricky comes to visit every year for a, an event called Oz Stravaganza. And it's a cute little town that has uh, yellow brick sidewalks and this huge event every year uh, celebrating kind of the town in a country fair, but also really celebrating the life and the work of L. Frank Baum and all the things the Wizard of Oz has done to the extent where as you're walking uh, down this, this little uh, strip of pavement, you are surrounded by no less than 200 little Dorothys dressed up in any direction. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, and one of the things I've been really lucky enough to have happen to me is that I have been able to sort of see this community and find the John Frickies of the world and, you know, other people like like Eric Schanauer and, and Paul Miles Schneider and all these other people that are uh, just super Oz fanatics. And it's really, really cool uh, just to sort of find that community. Um, and I just kind of want to paint that picture because in the, in the realm of the Wizard of Oz, we'll talk about the movie in just a second. It's really important to recognize that the 1939 film uh, is, you know, an interpretation of uh, a 1900 a book that was published in 1900 by L. Frank Baum and W. W. Denslow. Uh, that is not only a success story because it's a great book and it's just full of imagination, but it's a great success story because it's 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 published by somebody who has had a significant amount of failure and has not been able to really find the right success story and the the right win. And then The Wizard of Oz comes out and it's this this huge success. I mean, to the extent where he partially self-finances it and uh, it ends up changing his entire life. Uh, and to John Fricky, who I'm staring at right now, who's like, oh, Ryan, I didn't know you were having a monologue too. Uh, the Wizard of Oz, I think, has been uh, a uh, something that has really enlightened so many people to just really important lessons throughout the world. So let's shift it, John, shall we? Let's talk about The Wizard of Oz, the 1939 film. How do you feel about that? The Oz story is timeless. Frank Baum's imagination is timeless, his creations. Um, I always say that three, there are three reasons Oz, the Oz movie was the success it was. Um, um, it was made by Met Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, which I've always referred to as the greatest playground for adults in the history of modern time. And I'm talking about the MGM of the late 20s to the early 50s. Uh, in the prime of the studio system. Um, as one of their workers once said, a lot of people worked for studios in Hollywood across those years. Uh, they made good pictures. We worked at MGM. We made better pictures. There was that sense of pride. And um, only MGM would have invested 
would have budgeted $1.2 million for a live action Technicolor musical and then saw the budget jump to $2 million before even a foot of film had been uh, shot and then jumped to um, $2.7 million by the time it was finished filming and then spent another million dollars on prints and promotion, a $3.7 million production. In 1939, you could have made three or four big movies. Joan Crawford, Norma Shearer, Greta Garbo, you know, at $800,000 a shot in black and white, and they would have cleaned up. But MGM took the risk. MGM took the risk. And um, we can thank uh, a songwriter who was under contract there named Arthur Freed, who had been with Metro for 10 years. He had, across those 10 years, written lots of lyrics for MGM movies, um, Singing in the Rain, You Are My Lucky Star, All I Do Is Dream of You. Um, in fact, if you know the movie Singing in the Rain that came out in the 50s, all the lyrics in that film were drawn from Arthur Freed's songbook from the late 20s and the 30s. Uh, but Arthur wanted to be a movie musical producer. And in 1938, he was 37. He was close enough to Louis B. Mayer to say, um, boss, can you, you know, I want to move up the ladder. He said, uh, I've been here. I've been paying attention. Can, can I produce a movie? And Mayer said, sure, find a property. Who do you want to use? And Arthur knew you know, it would have to be a musical because that's where his heart and soul were. But uh, he knew that he was not going to be given Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy or Eleanor Powell, who were the big movie musical stars at Metro in 1937. He said, in effect, um, boss, I'm putting my money on the kid because they had just opened uh, Broadway Melody of 1938, which featured 14-year-old Judy Garland singing Dear Mr. Gable. The other songs she sang in the film were lyrics by Arthur Freed. He knew, everybody at Metro knew that this was somebody extraordinary. This was not just a little fat girl uh, that they were going to see if they could give a break. No, this is somebody who every time she opened her mouth, people fell down and who was sincere and warm. And all of this came across on the screen. Plus that X factor, uh, as I said earlier, of communication. Judy Garland is one of the rare people who it uh, doesn't matter if it's film, videotape, uh, recording, she gets across. She makes a connection with somebody watching and listening that a lot, a lot of people, you know, one of the one of the reasons that people don't necessarily just listen to Judy Garland for pleasure is that she demands that you pay attention. You cannot, you know, make chicken salad while you're listening to Judy Garland because you just want to sit down and pay attention. Um, but that was the idea that Arthur would find a property for Judy Garland. And he found Wizard of Oz. And concurrently, as Arthur was planning this, Mervyn Leroy, great director at Warner Brothers, came over at an unheard of salary to uh, produce movies at MGM. And so Mayer gave him The Wizard of Oz and said, Arthur, you'll be his assistant. You know, this is getting to be too big a project. Meanwhile, the money people here in New York, Nick Skank at Lowe's Incorporated, Lowe's Inc. being the theater chain where so many of the Metro pictures played and could make money, uh, he tried to put the kibosh on Wizard of Oz from the beginning. He said, no, I don't want to spend $1.2 million. You know, um, uh, Judy's a good little singer and good little, going to be a good little star, but, you know, can we get Shirley Temple? That's as far as that ever went. It was never any more than that kind of behind-the-scenes corporate talk. But everybody in California said, no, it's got to be. This is, this is for Judy. 
Temple can't do this. Temple is wonderful, but this is for Judy. So I, again, you had the conflation of MGM and Arthur Freed. You had Judy Garland coming along at the quintessential moment of, of her life. And you had L. Frank Baum, who was a born entertainer. You referenced the um, many careers he had before he became a children's book author that had not panned out. He'd been a playwright and a chicken breeder and a newspaper editor and a an, uh, journalist and uh, a crockery salesman and all these things to support his wife and eventually four sons. And one thing or another always got in the way. You know, the drought in South Dakota put an end to the paper and, and his community store. Uh, the newspaper didn't pay enough money. Um, his He had a bad heart and he couldn't tr be a traveling salesman of crockery after a while. Um, and so he started to, he had a mother-in-law who was the redoubtable uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, who was one of the three primary women along with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton who were behind women's rights. Uh, Matilda so much more vehemently than they also Indian rights and Underground Railroad years before. Uh, Matilda got kind of separated from the other two because she was too radical for them. But she, uh, her daughter Maud, married Frank Baum, made him a very, very good wife. And Matilda often visited them. She died in 1898 before uh, The Wizard of Oz was published. But she did see his first children's book come out. And she had been the one who had told him because she was there listening to him tell the stories he would make up to his four little boys and the neighborhood kids who had come clamoring to Mr. Baum for a story. She, uh, the family quote is, Frank Baum, you're a damn fool if you don't write down those stories and get them printed. So you had Frank Baum, born entertainer. You had Judy Garland, arguably the greatest entertainer in popular history, recorded time. And MGM, who was preeminently in 1939 in the entertainment business. Another thing that helped kickstart it is December 1937 is when Disney premiered Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which proved there was a all-ages audience, an all-ages audience, for musical fantasy on the screen. MGM was gambling and making it live action. MGM was gambling and creating without CGI flying monkeys and a tornado. And uh, a tornado when there was only... 24 seconds of grainy black and white film footage of a water spout in Cuma. That was all, there were photographs of tornadoes, but that was all they had to go on. Um, a melting witch, uh, a, a exploding witch, uh, a flying witch, um, a poppy field. Uh, munch, where were they going to get 300 munchkins? That they, they got 124 plus 10 kids, but it sufficed. Uh, these were all the, the things that they went through. Well, I think that's one, of, that's one of the things that's really important about that film is that, you know, here we are uh, in August 2024. It'll be the 85th anniversary of the movie. And, you know, I just rewatched it earlier today. And it's it's amazing how much of that film is still just jaw droppingly beautiful, uh, you know, these days. And it's because it's, you know, it's a landmark project for MGM. You know, M MGM is like really they're they're not betting the farm on this, but they're betting $3.7 million. I mean, that's a significant amount of money in 1939. Um, and 
part of what they're betting on is that the people behind the movie are going to be able to problem solve all of these visual tricks. And uh, let's we'll start to get into those. One thing that you alluded to or you talked about was just the the imagination of L. Frank Baum and how important that was. And one thing that I I've seen, you know, you and I were were talking before the interview about the the uh, well over a hundred times you've seen this movie, and probably about the dozen or so or less times I've seen this. Um, but as as I'm watching it, I somehow had never just maybe I'm just not paying attention. But the opening of the film says, "For nearly forty years, the story has given faithful service to the young in heart. Time has been uh, time has." been powerless to put its kindly philosophy out of fashion to those of you who have faith uh, faithful uh have been faithful to it in return and to the young in heart we dedicate this picture i mean it's just really interesting that like before the movie even starts we're already being told like there's there's all this history for all of you readers that you're expecting and uh thanks for joining us we're really curious to see how this experiment goes well, there had been a network radio series about The Wizard of Oz for 26 weeks in 33-34 on NBC. Jello sponsored three 15-minute broadcasts a week. Uh, they didn't go coast to coast, but they went as far west as Denver and uh, live. And Nancy Kelly, who later played the crazed mother in the movie The Bad Seed, was Dorothy. And Agnes Moorhead from Bewitched, as a young 30, in her 30s actress, played a wicked witch, another wicked witch, a cow, uh, you know, all these, you know, all these radio actors were part of it. Parker Fenley, who was the old, um, eventually grew up to be the Pepperidge Farm, you know, New England guy in commercials in the 50s and 60s was, uh, I think, the Tin Woodman, I'm remembering correct. But again, Oz, and then that book, a new book coming out every year, and kids talking about Oz, and there wasn't the kind of mass merchandising. MGM tried to launch mass merchandising with the Wizard of Oz movie, but part of the problem was that there was so much product waiting to get into theaters. Every Hollywood studio was trying to crank out 45 to 52 films a year, so that meant you know most pictures couldn't stay more than a week, uh, and in smaller towns, three days, two days. You know you had to keep turning over. So uh, the market for Oz. Um, product there was some and it's now very collectible obviously but um uh, the wizard of oz was one of the top 10 box office films of 1939 it was one of the top 10 uh films of the year in a poll of 450 movie critics uh unfortunately uh the first book done about the movie the wizard of oz was written by a woman named algene harms uh, in the late 70s the making of the wizard of oz which was very, very highly regarded, still is by many people. I reviewed it at age 26 for the Oz Club magazine and gave it a, an excellent review, pointing out a couple factual things that were she'd gotten wrong. Then fade out on 1997, fade up on 1988. I have a contract with two other friends from the Oz Club to do the official 50th anniversary pictorial history of the MGM Wizard of Oz. And uh, I had taken Al Jean at her word. You know, the, I mean, I had seen a lot of the original reviews. I, I wrote the very first magazine article that was ever written on the making of The Wizard of Oz for the Oz Club magazine when I was 18 for the 30th anniversary. No, there, there had never been a making of The Wizard of Oz um, survey before. I mean, there were features about it when the movie opened, but nobody had ever gone back and gone, you know. Um, so I'd seen a lot of reviews and I knew that it, there were several of them that were mixed. But Al Jean and her book took great glee in quoting at length from the three really rotten reviews it got. 
and did and came out and said, you know, that most of the critics didn't like it. And it didn't make a profit, which it did not. But she doesn't say why. She doesn't talk about it still being one of the top 10 grossing films of the year and on the 450 critics, 10 best list. And so my my back went up. And the more I researched, the more I found out, you know, that, you know, she she had gone into the project because it was a great project. But when and she had the advantage of interviewing all kinds of people who were still around in the early 70s who were no longer around in the late 1980s. But they didn't always remember things exactly correctly. And Al Jean didn't know enough about The Wizard of Oz going in to know which questions to ask. So uh, when our book came out, it, it was very well received. And I took Al Jean to task very delicately in a couple instances. But um, the film has had to combat since 1977 this legend that, well, you know, it was only when it went on TV that it became a hit that people liked it or paid any attention to it. And it was a real bomb and and nobody liked it and uh it tanked at the box office no it grossed i think it was 3.1 million dollars so it lost about 700,000 in first release but there were reasons for that that we talk about in our book that algene hadn't bothered to mention number 1 the wizard of oz premiered 2 weeks before uh hitler invaded poland and went on to decimate europe in short order which cut off the European market and MGM was counting on the European market for this technicolor musical fantasy. They just, you know, they knew that this would be innovative enough and charming enough to have a great audience there. So that cut off a big chunk of, of box office revenue. Um, the Wizard of Oz played to capacity audiences, broke attendance records virtually everywhere, every major city. Uh, there we produce ads in that book, you know, second big week, third week. We produce I, in the text I write, I quote all the variety, you know, when they report on the box office grosses in in the other cities, Oz Bothell in Cleveland, Oz sets record Chicago, Oz big business in Detroit, you know, that kind of stuff held over, held over, held over. Oz doing 300 percent of normal business. And um, but in a lot of instances, it couldn't be held past the second week because there was this glut of product that was already booked to follow Oz into the theaters. Then, what, two-thirds, four-fifths of the audience for Oz were kids and teens who got in for 10, 15, 20, 25 cents, or 10, 20, 25 cents less than the adults. Now, it had a wide audience, uh, there were 10,000 people in line to see it when it opened here in New York at the Capitol Theater uh, for a couple good reasons. Um, but so Oz was making money like crazy. And like I said, was top 10 box office pictures of the year, but not enough to make back. Uh, it went into the black when MGM re-released it 10 years later, made another million five. So it edged into profit. Um and one reason The Wizard of Oz was such a hit in New York, 5,000-seat Capitol Theater on the corner of 51st and Broadway, uh, MGM decided it should have a big send-off. So in addition to The Wizard of Oz on one of the largest movie screens in the country, in a 5,000-seat deluxe movie theater, um, there would also be previews of coming attractions, a cartoon, travel log, short subjects. And then when that was all over, 
the cur- the screen would go up and the curtain would open and on the stage would be an eight a 22 piece orchestra four backup singers and five times a day between showings of the wizard of oz judy garland and mickey rooney live singing and dancing for 23 minutes 28 minutes pardon me and 10,000 people in a moat surrounding the block from 51st and Broadway to 51st and 8th to 50th and 8th back up to 50th and Broadway and around the corner, all ages. And this went on the two weeks Judy and Mickey were there. They were still doing such business that when Mickey had to go back to New York after back to L.A. and uh, to do Andy Hardy, another Andy Hardy movie, they brought in uh, Ray Bolger and Bert Lahr to work with Judy at the Capitol. And it played another week. I mean, it was, it's been such a pleasure all my life to write about Oz and to write about Judy because the more research I have done, the more I have found out that pokes holes in all the myths and legends about both of those topics. And now if, if the myths and legends were true, I would have to, you know, forgive me, I've got the journalism degree from Northwestern. There's a certain responsibility that goes with that and a, and a, a, a need to be accurate and unbiased and am i enthusiastic in my writing heck yes but i have a lot of factual stuff that enthusiastically backs me up it's been wonderful well let's talk about let's talk about the film a little bit i think that uh you know it's 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 a fascinating example in the sense that one thing we haven't talked about is uh, what, according to the uh, Library of Congress, it is the most viewed film of all time, um, which is which is pretty. I mean, it is literally the most impressive thing any film can do. As early as 1970, before they even had Library of Congress, there, there Judy died in 1969. So when they showed the film in 1970, Gregory Peck came on board to do a 60 second introduction to the film in homage to Judy and pointed out that Oz through motion picture screenings, theater screenings and television screenings, it has been probably seen by more people than any other entertainment in the history of the world. And Gregory Peck said, that's something to think about. And that was 1970. I I forget whether there was like in a team of Italian, there was a team of Italian scientists a few years ago who uh, vetted every movie ever made or something and they they voted the wizard of oz as the most influential movie of all time there were more uh references to the wizard of oz or passing nods to the wizard of oz in more movies than there were to any other past movies well it's yeah absolutely i mean one of the things that i did is i was like all right what are what what how many lines are there that instantly resonate with us and you know i toto i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore we must be over the rainbow follow the yellow brick road a heart is uh is not judged by how much you love but by how much you are loved by others lions and tigers and bears oh my put them up put them up not nobody not know how i mean there's uh you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain there's so many components within this film that like I, whether or not you're a Wizard of Oz fan, you find yourself using the references and the metaphors just unconsciously. The one the one I love that it's always gotten a laugh because most people don't, d- didn't remember it until the last five or six years. But when you, I've seen it in theaters, people it comes out of nowhere when uh, Dorothy meets the Scarecrow and says, how can you talk if you haven't got a brain? And Ray Bolger says, I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Well, now that brings down the house. You can get an ovation in in recent years with that little uh bit of dialogue in, in, in sitcoms in other movies in um 
references in songs, in uh, sermons, in newspaper headlines. Um, I, I from Wisconsin. I was home uh, frequently. Went home until my parents both passed, and I was home in two thousand nine. My mom was still alive, and she was coming back with me to um, New York for the seventieth uh, anniversary of Oz. Uh, festivities here at Tavern on the Green and Lincoln Center and everything that I was emceeing. And uh, it's, it was this was in the fall, and it just so happened that the Green Bay Packers were paying the Chicago Bears. And meanwhile, the Wisconsin uh, State football team, the Badgers, were also playing that weekend. And the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in the sports section that weekend, the Black Deadly headline said... Um, Badgers and Packers and Bears, oh my. You know, right for, for the jugular uh, in, on the sports page. Uh, one of the, the one of the far side cartoons, this goes back 20 years ago, but it's one of my favorite. You saw a, a, a man, an optometrist in a white coat with a pointer and his patient was sitting on a chair in front of him and the, chair, the patient was looking at the eye chart and uh, the man was pointing at the roll of letters on the eye chart. And... Um, the caption under the cartoon said, Dr. Harold Brockway, uh, optometrist, was a great Wizard of Oz fan. And the letters on the eye chart spelled out, oh, we are, oh, ha. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, I can't watch a rerun of Will and Grace or The Nanny or uh, any of those programs. You know, it, it, it's indication as early as the Dick Van Dyke series, which was like 1960 to 65. Rob barely gets a titter from the studio audience when he, Laura wakes him out of a dream. And Rob sits bolt up and says, I had him. And there's kind of a little chuckle. But the movie had only been on TV two or three times at that point. It had not entered the great subconscious of the world. Now you do that and everybody knows what, you know, you put that in and. I'm sorry, I shanghaied your question. No, no, it's good. And I, I but I think that's one thing that's really important about this is that the, you know, the film comes out in 1939. Uh, you know, it it does some other theatrical uh releases and then eventually makes its way to television, but it's not really until the 1980s that anybody can like enter this film into their home on a regular basis. You know, I mean, you're unless you're holding unless you get a 16 millimeter print and you're you're showing it at your house, but still it has that grip on our culture. Um well before then it's absolutely true because you um you talk to anybody again of a certain age and uh they will tell you uh, i've said this often enough and it's obviously either it, it, other people have the exact same feeling that if you grew up in the late 50s the 60s the 70s oz didn't come out on home video until 1980 and then it cost something like 90 dollars uh but if you grew up across those decades the three most important days of the year for any child were your birthday, the December holidays, and the night the Wizard of Oz was on. Everything came to a dead halt. I didn't see it in color until I was a freshman at Northwestern. And I kept wondering how I was going to commandeer the one TV lounge in the three-story all-male dorm at Northwestern in 1970 to watch the Wizard of Oz. But there was a color TV set, and I'd never seen it in color. And um, I needn't have worried. There were more guys jammed into the lounge that night than had been there for the Super Bowl a couple of weeks before, because, again, they had all grown up with it. This was midterm tomorrow be damned. I'm spending two hours 
being joyous, being reminded, loving this. And those are the people in my generation who brought up their kids on it and whose kids' kids are now being brought up on it. You know, as, as I said to you when we were writing about today, there are four and five-year-olds who've seen the film 400 times. They've watched it. They've seen it more than I have. Uh, not that I've ever set out to do a, a record. It's just, um, it, it's, there is there is a magic there. These are all the cliches. There's a magic there. There's I I I want to again pay a moment of homage to Judy because I often say you know why why does that movie go to everybody? And I said because Baum Baum when he wrote the story Baum was Baum was banned by librarians for many years. Libraries didn't have the Oz books because it was. A, not garbage it was just you know the kind of hack writing and series books we didn't stack unless they were venerable like laura ingalls wilder but um bomb one of the great oz scholars and collectors was a, a professor named c warren hollister from santa barbara who's gone now god bless him but he wrote a wonderful article called uh, talking about the four dimensions that were applied to uh children's authors and style and vocabulary and whatever they all were and he said, with Frank Baum, there's got to be a fifth dimension. And he said that fifth dimension is three-dimensionality. He said, you do not read on chapter one, page one. You go into the page and you go on the journey with Dorothy. And MGM, what's the first thing you see? Well, the first thing you see is the only actual location footage in the whole film. Everything else is done on sound stages. The only real footage of clouds in the sky. But... Um, the first thing you see is Judy Garland worried, scared about her dog, very scared about her dog. Instantly, every kid in the audience and a whole lot of adults can relate because they all had pets. They all worried about their pets. They all loved their pets. Then Judy gets the dog taken away from her. Then the dog comes back and Judy, as every kid does and as every adult remembers at some point we all said i'm running away from home i can remember the night i tried when i was like four or five um pre-dorothy and then dorothy is lost and the tornado comes and how is she going to get home now meanwhile everybody for the most part has forgotten that this movie is was a big promotion as being filmed in technicolor you're 18 minutes in there's been no color nobody gives a dime it's like they're so wrapped up in her and her story doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl male or female she communicates all of that love in her song and caring about toto and worrying about annie m and you are there with her you go right into the story with her and person jack haley said it best the tin man he said years later he said it's her sincerity that carries the picture absolutely and i think that you know the uh from what i understand the movie is supposed to be it's it's supposed to be a vehicle to showcase garland um you know it's very much intended to like uh really highlight her as like hey this is who we're investing in in the future um but equally i mean the just i think the timelessness of the the narrative is really what stays with us too. I mean, who who doesn't hope that in the worst of times, the most lost of times, that they can come across three people 
even just one person who is there to join you and say, I'll get lost with you and things are going to be okay. I will be vulnerable with you. I will, uh, you know, I will show you that there's hope in the world and that we can do this together. I mean, I think that that inherent narrative uh, just at the heart of the story is something that like we, especially in 2023, are seeking out. Um, and it's just fascinating to think 80, you know, 80, 84 plus years prior to this, this movie's coming out and it's coming out right before World War II kicks off when we're all thinking to ourselves, like, is there empathy in the world? Is there hope? You know, I mean, I think this just that just really makes the message of this film just stand out so much more. Well, exactly. And that message is in the book as well. Plus the message that um, as you see in the movie, as you read in the book, whenever there's a problem on the road, whenever there's an emotional concern on the road, whenever there is terror on the road, the scarecrow thinks of an answer, the Tin Woodman comes up with the sympathy and the lion roars his head off. And they all have what they wanted all the time. They just have to dig it out of themselves. It's like Judy says in the movie, The Harvey Girls, uh, the, what the con i think it's something that the constitution guarantees us life liberty and the life guarantees us the pursuit of happiness but it's up to us to do the pursuing and that's what the wizard of oz said plus in those three characters you also have in all of the actors in the wizard of oz you have people who are honed on the stage who went out there from the time they were young and hit the audience over the head because they knew if they didn't make hit it audience at the opening matinee, they didn't last for the week. They knew how to kick it across. I want to talk about that point um, because I think that's really important is that uh, I'm going to use an analogy that I've heard you make use in other, other interviews. And we'll see if we can get to this. But, you uh, th you know, the mass appeal of The Wizard of Oz is something that uh, you and I both believe in. And I, I think culturally uh, has has shown itself. And there's a, a variety of reasons for it. And I think it's, it's a film that has somehow managed to, like, really at the time span generations and then historically span generations. I mean, you talked about in one interview about the fact that, you know, Judy Garland, uh, people always think that she's supposed to be nine or sorry, uh, Dorothy's supposed to be nine in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, L. Frank Baum never puts an age on her, but we're assuming that she's a very young girl. But Judy Garland is able to act like she's like 10, 11 or 12. And then she's able to project her voice with the confidence of a 30 year old, like, you know, singer. And it just manages to pull everybody in. But then on top of that, and the, the part that I think is really interesting is that The Wizard of Oz is like a time capsule for the sort of end of the era of vaudeville. And the fact that you have like, uh, you know, her three companions, uh, you know, Ray Bulger, Jack Haley and Burt Lahr are these vaudeville performers that are really nailing in, in works with Victor Fleming, the director, like the way to captivate the playfulness and the joy and the like aha moments of vaudeville onto film. And I think that's really, really cool. And something that like, when you look at that movie through that angle of if this was a vaudeville performance, how would I feel? It just takes it to a whole other level. Exactly. They, they, they make it fun. And as, as we have said privately, um, it's Oz. If it's not fun, it's being done wrong. And uh, the other thing too, I think, uh, and Judy, having been on stage since she was two, not as a vaudeville star until she was uh, 11 or 12. That's when she started getting really noticed. But one of the things I love about Judy, and um, there's a whole saga about the 24 hours I spent with Lucille Ball and Lu Lucille Ball, not knowing how I felt about Judy Garland, saying to me, you know, that people always expected her, Lucy, to be funny. And she said, I wasn't funny. The writers were funny. She said this all of her life. 
And then she said, you know, who was really funny? We're just com- com- casual conversation. Judy Garland. I went, whoa. And I said, really? And, she, and not that I didn't know that, but she said, oh, Judy Garland was the funniest woman in Hollywood. Judy was naturally funny. She made me look like a mortician. And that is a great quote from somebody like Lucille Ball. But there are moments in The Wizard of Oz where, you know, Judy's Judy has to bring humor to uh, one of the reasons they fired Richard Thorpe, the first director, and got Judy out of the blonde wig and the frilly party dress and her fancy schmancy, you know, fairy tale princess kind of, oh, gosh, you know, playing a playing a little girl, playing a heroine. George Cukor, the interim director for weeks, said, no, the, the great story here is that you are Dorothy from Kansas. I don't think he said you're Francis Gum from Minnesota, but that was the point he was making. You have to be, you have to believe this and you have to be sincere in it. But again, there are moments when Judy's humor, um, when she reads a line, when Billy Burke shows up and Judy just looks down where Toto, Terry the dog is, and she says, now I know we're not in Kansas. You know, this, and and when after Meinhardt Robbie, God bless him, the coroner delivers his couplet. She's really most sincerely dead. The camera's on him. And then it cuts to a, a wider shot of, of Judy Center and Meinhardt on this side of her and the mayor over here. And he's finished. And Judy looks back to the mayor. But then she looks back. She shoots another look at Meinhardt as if to say, you know, is this for real? Same thing happens after the Lullaby League. The ballerinas move upstage. Forward come the three lollipop guild guys. And Judy's standing here, and the mayor is down here. The lollipop guild's coming in from here, and nobody can see the gestures. Sorry, folks. But um, she, you know, the, the three tough little kids, as they were called in the script, come forward, and she looks down at the mayor as if to say, now what? You know, who, who are these people? And uh, when she starts to giggle, or no, when the corner of her mouth goes up, when Bert Lahr starts to cry, I mean, that's the uh, great legend that's gotten way out of hand. But um, it's, it's you know, oh, she's, she, she's still cracking up at him. She wasn't supposed to. No, she's cracking up at the fact that now Dorothy is, you know, has seen a few seconds of this big king of the jungle beast threatening them who's sobbing like a baby. And she's, she, you know, of course, she's going to be a little bit of just want to laugh at him because that wouldn't be polite. Dorothy is unfailingly polite. But um, again, all of that kind of every time there's humor, they find it. Uh, there was a wonderful writer who worked with Victor Fleming on a lot of his films named John Mayen. And uh, Victor, he's not credited for Oz, but he was on the set pretty much every day so that Victor could say, OK, this this isn't playing. We need a tagline here or we need, you know, something we need a bit, something to, you know, give us a, a lift or a lilt or a laugh. And. Um, you know, and and. Fleming encouraged this. It was Bert Lahr who, in rehearsal, said, you know, when the lion wakes up from the poppies, unusual weather we're having. That was Bert's idea. And Fleming wasn't sure. And Bert said, I bet it's a laugh. And so I don't know if they took it both ways, but they certainly took it the way Bert suggested it. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that when you're uh, when you're watching the film and you look at the list of credits, Judy Garland's listed first and then uh, Frank Morgan is listed second. And uh, for anybody who's listening, who's like, wait, who does he play? Well, he plays Professor Marvel and he plays the Wizard of Oz, but he also plays several other characters, which I thought was pretty funny. And listening to your commentary, uh, all of a sudden, I'm just like, I need to look at this movie again uh, more critically from this. But he uh, he plays the Emerald City Guard that uh you know when they're trying to get in and uh you know hey well read the sign because they they pull the bell and like well there is no sign and he hangs up the bell out of order side and then they you know he's they're told to knock and they knock and he comes back uh you know he's the carriage driver uh with the horse of a different color segment um 
and then uh he's the the gatekeeper uh and my favorite part is that his uh in different shots his mustache keeps changing which angle it is and there's just these nice sort of like i don't know subtle comedic moments within the film where as you're watching it um you know, like all of a sudden, I think things are amplified because of the amount of care that's put into the comedy of the movie, which you don't necessarily see in other comedies where it's kind of a one and done approach. The layers within this film and granted, when you're spending three point seven million dollars, you're going to be very thoughtful. Uh, but the the way in which they layer out that type of comedy, I think, is something that is kind of underappreciated. We always think about the music, but not necessarily the laughs that come from it. Well, and, and unfortunately, because the film has, you know, garnered its greatest appreciators in terms of numbers from televiewings and home video viewings, they're not used to watching it the way it was meant to be seen in a theater with hundreds of people who would be compelled to laugh. They, you know, people don't laugh in movies anymore. It, it's all very internalized. And all these movies, Meet Me in St. Louis, Easter Parade, all singing and they all have laughs built into them, not just the hokey, obvious ones, but the the little bit with the uh, the soldier with the mustache up and then the mustache down was a comedy bit that was cut out when they were trying to tighten the Wizard of uh, Wizard of Oz, get it down from two hours to 100 minutes. And when they come running up, oh, well, we, we want to see the wizard and nobody can see the great Oz. Not nobody not know how. And and. Uh, Frank Morgan is there as the guard and um, uh, he, he interrupts them. He says, oh, excuse me, it's time for the changing of the guard. And he marches over to a little guard stand to the side of the screen and goes in and he takes the mustache that is turned up and turns it down. That's the changing of the guard. And then he walks out and they do the rest of the dialogue. Well, I guess they just figured, you know, we really don't need, you know, we're doing enough shtick with Bell out of order. Please knock. Uh, we don't need to hammer this home quite so hard. But that, you know, it's it's like with Margaret Hamilton's uh, part was cut down as much as they possibly could after the three or four sneak previews in early summer 1939, because she was scaring the heck out of kids. They were being carried out uh, shrieking, not not that what was left didn't care, send them out shrieking anyway. But, um, no, they they again, a lot. I, I think if anybody could find if there were any possibility of of. You know, when, when you get to heaven, what, what what do you want to see? Oh, I want to see the 20 minutes cut out of The Wizard of Oz, you know. I, I mean, I really couldn't care less about the jitterbug, but um, I, there was, a, after Bert Lahr sings If I Were King of the Forest, which is about an hour and 15 minutes in, the next 45 minutes of the film, there are no more songs. Jitterbug is out. Dorothy's reprise of Over the Rainbow in The Witch's Castle is out. And what I really, the minute I would like to see uh, if, if people are watching, uh, when they've melted the witch and um, they give her the, the winky guards, give her the room, please, and take it with you. And now we can go back to the wizard and tell him the wicked witch is dead. And the winky guards all chant, the wicked witch is dead. And there's a crossfade from the witch's tower to the head of the great Oz. Why, why can I believe my eyes? Why have you come back? Well, if you watch that crossfade very carefully, watch the mouths of the winky guards because they say, uh, the wicked witch is dead, but they keep talking, and the but the track is gone. And what happened was they had all started singing, "Hail, hail, the witch is dead, witch old witch, the wicked witch, hail, hail, the wicked witch is dead." Of all of them up in the tower celebrating, then the film actually dissolved through to three hundred plus extras in green, escorting Dorothy the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, the Lion, and Toto 
the scarecrow carrying the broomstick through the streets of the Emerald City back to the Palace of the Great Oz. And it is a killer vocal arrangement of Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead with Mario Land of Oz and we're off to see the wizard counterpoint. And it beautifully orchestrated, you know, just one minute, one minute. It, they could have left that one in because there are stills of it and it just looks beautifully elaborate and uplifting and fun. And um, anyway, that that's what I miss from Wizard of Oz more than anything else. And it's OK. We still have a pretty darn good movie uh, to, to watch, which is cool. Um, you talked about Margaret Hamilton, and I, I do want to talk about her performance uh, and the inherent like horror movie fan in me is just sort of fascinated with that. But um you know, Margaret Hamilton, uh, you know, we, we think about her as this like elderly evil witch. And she's like, what What did we say, 35 at the time, something like that when she's making it. But she also goes down in my brain as one of as being like one of the greatest like horror movie villains of all time, uh, because she has what I like to call the Hannibal Lecter effect, which is she's only on screen for about 13 minutes, but she stays with you for like her, her, her just presence overcasts so much of that movie. And, you know, when kids are going to have nightmares or, you know, adults are going to have nightmares about that movie, it's always the performance of the Wicked Witch. And she's really not in the movie that much. No, but it's one of the great um, contributions made by the screenwriters that she is in as much as she is, because in the original Baum book, uh, Dorothy gets to Oz. She meets Glinda and three munchkins, and they explain she's got to go to see the wizard. Um, and there's still one wicked witch left in Oz uh, in the West. But apart from that casual mention and maybe one or two more until Dorothy and her friends get to the Emerald City the first time, nobody ever talks about the Wicked Witch of the West. And the the wizard sends them off to uh, destroy the Wicked Witch. Uh, in the in the movie, it's bring us bring me her broomstick, and she gets destroyed anyway. But in the movie, it's you know kill. In the book, it's get rid of the Wicked Witch of the West. And there's one chapter. They go off to the Winky Country. The witch tries to destroy them with her wolves, her bees, her Winky guards, and finally the Winged Monkeys bring her Dorothy and Toto and the lion and the scarecrow is torn apart and the tin man is lifted up and dropped by the monkeys in a mountain range and battered and torn apart. Um, but by the end of that chapter, the witch has succeeded in stealing one of Dorothy's silver shoes and Dorothy in anger throws a bucket of water on her. One chapter, that's all there is of the Wicked Witch of the West. But to make her more of a threat and of course to tie in with what MGM, the producer and the director and, and Arthur Freed and the writers all felt was necessary. That psychological tie-in for adults make Oz a dream so that we don't have to pretend we believe in fantasy, all of us sophisticated grown-ups. Um, the farmhands and Miss Gulch and Professor Marvel. And um, it adds. It's it's a, a whole other aspect. Um, but as, as, to go back to something I said 12 hours ago, um, there's there's just this sense of um, I love Oz. I love it. Well, let's talk about what you've got going on, John. So uh, in 2024, uh, which by the time of this broadcast is just a few days away, um, you have a, uh, a a book coming out about the musical White Christmas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm glad you. It's the first book I've done, and I've done eight of them now. Uh, three on Judy, uh, two on the Wizard of Oz movie, and three on the Greater Oz phenomenon. Uh, and I and I say this with no sense of um, advertisement because they're all out of print. I mean, you can go to Amazon.com and look up Fricky John, 
and there may be used copies floating around, but I don't realize anything from those. I'm not, uh, but if you like Oz and Judy, you'll like these books only because uh, I learned very early on from the 50th anniversary pictorial history. And I have had one repeated comment to me across eight books, which I'm very grateful to have. People invariably come up to me and say, I love your books. I love your book. I love this book. I love that book. I love your books. I haven't read them, but the pictures are fabulous. So they have pictures like crazy up the wazoo. And when those books came out, most of those pictures had never been published before in a book. So I take pride in doing that. But um, this will be my first attempt to do a book on something other than Oz and Judy Garland. And it's been a, a project that has stretched out over eight years because the husband and wife who run the White Christmas House uh, in Kentucky, uh, where Rosemary Clooney once uh, lived uh, later in life as a kind of vacation place. And they've got original costumes and posters and set pieces. And um, they commissioned me to write this book, um, gosh, seven, eight years ago. But in the it was supposed to be basically just a coffee table book with 25,000 words of text and uh, a lot of pictures and pull quotes from people who worked on the film. Well, uh, we went to the Library of Congress and found so much material. And we went to Paramount Pictures and found so much material. We went to the Library of Congress and found so much material. Uh, Motion Picture Academy found all this material. And then uh, the husband and wife who collect found all kinds of costume test photographs and all kinds of set reference pictures and all kinds of backstory about White Christmas that is not unlike the backstory of The Wizard of Oz. A movie that, that White Christmas was, it was the highest grossing film of 1954. But the critics didn't like it, just the people. And what made it eternal is that in the mid early 60s, mid 60s, it started being shown on at Christmas time every year. And it got to be in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And now, oh, I can talk about this book and people say, oh, that's, we used to wait till the, the night the movie was on. That was the night we trimmed the tree or that's the night we wrapped the packages. or that's the night we did the Christmas cookies. And um, so it's going to be a vastly illustrated book. Uh, George Jakiris, who won the Oscar for West Side Story playing Bernardo in 1962 uh, is one of the background singers, dancers in West Side in White Christmas. He did our introduction we have interviews with several of the dancers who worked on the film uh, and extras and uh, quotes from all the participants, quotes from Bing and Rosie Clooney and Danny Kay and Vera Ellen and Irving Berlin, without whom there would be no White Christmas. And I, and I, I did, I took the project down because I love that movie. If they'd come to me and said, would you do a coffee table book on uh, Santa Claus conquers the Martians or the creature from the black lagoon or, um, the Godfather, I would have said, no, I have no interest in those movies. I really don't. Uh, you know, and I'm, this is confession. As the, as the saying goes, deep down, I'm shallow. Uh, I have the stuff I fell in love with when I was five and the extenuating uh, product from that. So the book will be out next fall, fall 2024, God willing. And uh, I'm already working with uh, Chitnango on Ostravaganza for the first weekend in June. Uh, the theme will be the 85th anniversary of The Wizard of Oz. And we already have commitments for special guest stars like Jane Lahr, the daughter of the cowardly lion, Bert Lahr. Um, Robert Welch, who's the grandson of Arnold Gillespie, the guy who did all the special effects. And they have 
you know, memorabilia and clips and anecdotes to share that are just invaluable. Um, and then the usual gang of Oz authors and illustrators and other suspects. Uh, same thing, I'm working with Wamego, Kansas, where they also have an Oz Museum and they have Oztoberfest the first weekend in October. I've been doing that one on and off for, uh, gosh, almost 20 years. The Judy Garland Festival in her hometown in Grand Rapids, also in June. Um, who knows what will come along with the 85th anniversary. Um, I've got a tentative offer to go to the to uh, a university in Wyoming where they have many of Buddy Ebsen's pictures. Buddy Ebsen, Jed Clampett from the Beverly Hills, Buddy Ebsen, Barnaby Jones. But Buddy Ebsen, who got cast as the Tin Woodman and the Wizard of Oz and who was the one who had an allergic reaction to the silver dust in the Tin Man makeup and had to be rushed to the hospital and put in an iron lung and recast the part with Jack Haley. So they, they want to talk about Wizard of Oz. Um, I did a, a lecture last year for Judy Garland's Centennial called Judy, the First 100 Years. And now I'm revising it and taking it out to other places uh, as Judy, the, the Second 100 Years, as we launch her, her longevity and her, her charm and uh, her magic and, and the magic of Oz. Um, That's awesome, John. Is is the so for anybody who's interested in uh, in following any of your your work? Do you have uh, social media or websites that you'd like to uh, you'd like to tout? Well, you can you can go to Ostravaganza for information on Chipnango. You can go to Oztoberfest for information about Kansas. You can go to uh, Judy Garland Birthplace for information about that festival. Um, uh, for me, I'm John Fricky on Facebook. Uh, there are several others, but I'm kind of easy to find uh, for people who like this kind of thing. If you if you just find me and you click on to look at the page, you'll see it's all about Oz and Garland. So it's a, kind of a dead giveaway. That I'm not I'm not too clandestine about any of this. Uh, but and, I, and then, and I, sorry, John, I keep cutting you off. That's okay. I was just say, I don't as as I guess I, I will fall down out of this chair when I stop talking, but I don't get tired of it as long as we're doing it. Fair enough. Well, and before we depart, I always just want to make sure that I make space. Is there anything that uh, we haven't chatted about or anything on your mind that you want to kind of uh, send out to listeners, any ideas, topics before we, uh, before we close out? A million things, but um, they're Oz and Garland specific, and we've done enough on those topics. What I want to say is if you're, Bringing up kids, and I mean young kids, three, four, five, six years old, you can do no better for them than go to the library and get some of the classic musicals, Judy Garland, Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, black and white, get kids used to black and white. They're not going to know it's not cool if you don't tell them. And if they fall in love with black and white when they're four and five years old, nobody's going to change their mind when they're 10 or 15. Uh, the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, uh, the Disney musicals, there, there's no harm in any of that. And uh, God knows they're going to grow up and hear every new pop song, every new rock song, every new rap song. They're going to hear terrible language, terrible expressions. Uh, they're going to see all kinds of uh, TV and movies that are dark and dark and dark and where people are being inhumane to other people as if this is accepted behavior, where the language is 
kind of language you wouldn't have dreamed of saying out loud, let alone on the streets, let alone in day-to-day conversation, let alone as a punctuation in every other sentence. Uh, kids are going to find out about all that. Let them find out about some other stuff when they're young enough to not know that it isn't new. To let them know that history is great, that history is important. And I'm not talking about the stuff, you know, the heavy-duty political stuff and all the agendas right now. I'm just talking about when entertainment was uh, uplifting, when you were told, when you were given examples of how to behave, how to treat, how to join forces with other people and get stuff accomplished. Whether you're trying to find a brain, a heart, and courage, or your way home, whether you're trying to put a show on in the barn, whether, you know, whatever odds are against you. Um, If you are around kids, if you are bringing up kids, if you are teaching kids, nursery schools, preschools, uh, grandparents, parents, um, please don't let them wander through the internet and the TV on their own because um, so much danger has been done and so much damage and so much danger has been unleashed and so much damage has been done in the last 35, 40 years. Yes, this is all part of life too. But it's if it were all of life, we might as well all just pack up now and quit. You've got to keep, no matter how many dreams cave in, you've got to keep going forward and making the best and the most of what you can. And if there's a better life lesson to be learned, I don't know what it would be. Would you like me to sing God bless America now? (laughs) (laughs) I think, uh, I think that just gave us all something beautiful to meditate on. You know, I don't, you know, who am I to say all this? It's just one guy's opinion, but um, I haven't learned nearly as much in 73 years as I should have in many years. But I have learned stuff that I think is important and I think it's important to bring to the table. Be the person who says hello in the elevator. Be the person who opens the door. Be the person who walks into a party and as terrified as you are of a crowd of stranger, strangers, be the first person to extend, extend your hand and say, hi, my name is. And who are you and what do you do? And no matter how terrified they are, there's nobody who isn't able and capable of talking about themselves and get it going. Um, try. That's it's great. <laughs> that's that's amazing, John. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate it, and we'll. Uh, I have a feeling we'll be doing some other collaborations sometime soon. Perhaps even at Ostravaganza. It'll be great. I would be honored, Brian. Thank you for the privilege of this. Thank you for great questions and uh, great responses. I wish people could see you to see what a, a giving interviewer you are. You smile, you laugh, you you put it forth. The energy is is very cyclical. If if I've been able to put across any kind of oomph, it's because you've been sending it right back, and I am grateful for that too. Now I will shut up. Thank you, everybody who's listened to any of this. 
I really hope you enjoyed that interview with John. Uh, it's always a pleasure just to sit down and talk with somebody who is beyond passionate about something. I love his uh, self-diagnosed claim that he is prone to enthusiasm. I'm not sure I've ever met anybody in my life who uh, those three words, prone to enthusiasm, more apply to. Plus, it's always nice when the voice from my uh, audio commentary on my DVD tells me that I'm a good interviewer. That was really nice. So, John, thanks so much for joining. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, Ostravaganza this year, and I hope you are too. So, once again, if it's uh, if you really enjoyed this conversation, you're interested in opening yourself up to Oz and having a little bit more of an immersive experience in the Wizard of Oz world, I strongly encourage you to uh, check out the All Things Oz Museum in Chittenango, New York. If you are not located anywhere near Chittenango, you can find them at allthingsoz.org and on, uh, you know, all your favorite social media platforms. Um, and then Ostravaganza always takes place the first weekend in June. So if you're ever in central New York, uh, about 20 minutes outside of Syracuse, you can uh, join the All Things Oz Ostravaganza and just see what it's like when tons of Oz fanatics uh, all come together to celebrate an amazing work. Speaking of amazing work, next episode uh, is not only going to be the new year, we're going to be beaming in on January 3rd, but we're going to be speaking with a really talented artist named Kyla Yeager. Kyla is an intuitive ADHD artist, and what I mean by that is Kyla has ADHD and has embraced that part of herself uh, and used it as a means to uh, develop her living as an artist. Um, we talk about neurodivergence, we talk about art artistic entrepreneurship, and the power of capturing your emotions in the creative process. She's Canadian-based, her work is featured all around Montreal and Toronto, uh, and you can see her at, uh, at local shows uh, in, uh, in Canada. So if you are interested in neurodivergence, if you know somebody or if you yourself uh, have ADHD and it's something that you're struggling with, this conversation may be of interest to you. As always, thanks again for tuning in. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here for the show. Um, if you like what you hear, please uh, write, review, and most importantly, share it with other people. The goal is to get these messages out there so that others can enjoy uh, a pick-me-up, and I hope that's what I'm putting out there. You can find the world of Ryan's Lomac on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can email meditations at ryanslomac.com if you are interested in uh, just sending a message or being a sponsor or being involved in some capacity. And as always, please make space for conversation because you just might learn something. Have a wonderful day and an even better start to your 2024.